everyone. I am Surupi and I run Luti and Mutton's Dog Behavior and Nutrition. I'm based out of Gurgaon in India and I offer private nutrition and behavior consultations, pet parents and dog caregivers. I work with a holistic approach using science and empathy as key pillars in supporting dogs. Welcome to another episode of the Luti and Mutton's podcast. September is Pain Awareness Month. And I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about pain in our dogs. My own understanding of pain and discomfort in our dogs really began with bringing Mutton home. When she came home, she had bald patches on the skin, which I attributed to a result of a poor diet and skin issues. She was extremely touch sensitive around her neck. She didn't like us touching her ears. She demonstrated unpredictable behavior, especially around Luchi or us being in her space. That had been a cause for multiple fights between them as well. She wouldn't run like other dogs, wouldn't play with toys, wouldn't get onto couches or beds, would barely sniff on walks, you know, just struggle to sleep. All of this I attributed to her being a rescue and just taking time to adjust. Uh, but one day, Luchi and she got into such a bad fight that I felt like there has to be something else going on. And so that's when I started the journey of pain assessment and treating her pain. You know, just a few sessions of focused massages under the guidance of garland myotherapy were a game changer. Uh, she had a lot more fluidity in her movements. Her neck wasn't a touch sensitive zone anymore. She was less on guard, chirpier even. She was able to engage in enriched environments, was able to sleep better, and overall was just calmer and more emotionally regulated. And it's interesting that now that I have context of pain and its manifestations and behaviors, both subtle and not so subtle, I, you know, hindsight is interesting, right? Because I am I'm seeing all of these signs and I know that these are signs of pain in dogs. But again, as as uh, as an uninformed pet parent, as someone who didn't have access to conversations on pain in dogs, uh, I missed even the more you know, obvious signs, I suppose. I think a lot of the times, like we think our dogs are in pain only when they're limping or unable to move. And that's where I was uh, when we got mutton home. But again, those are just really some of the signs. And perhaps, you know, not to sort of add degrees of severity, but I guess that's when things are really unbearable, right? Um, dogs in general seem to have a high threshold for pain and, and that pain and discomfort that they experience manifests in so many different behaviors. Uh, like I said, some of them are subtle, but some are not so subtle. In fact, according to a study by Daniel Mills and a few others, the number of pain cases in dogs and cats are severely underreported. They assume that perhaps 80% of medical cases that they see are cases of undiagnosed and unassessed pain. That's a huge, huge number. And, and these show up in multiple ways for our dogs, right? We see defensive behavior, we see touch sensitivity, extreme fearfulness, house soiling, lethargy, being slow to rise, reluctance to jump off furniture or jump on. We see self-mutilation of the paws of the hind legs. Uh, we see an increased need for rest, excessive connection-seeking behaviors, stargazing, fly snapping, tail chasing, and other, you know, quote-unquote compulsive behaviors. In fact, 
In some cases, even pika has been associated with pain and discomfort in dogs. And so the list goes on really, right, to include other behaviors like resource guarding, reactivity, freezing on walks or sitting down on walks, excessive paw licking and or chewing, unwillingness to sit when asked. And then there are other manifestations too, like skin issues, gut issues, loss of appetite, excessive anal gland secretions, some of which are actually treated for other conditions, but not the root cause, which is pain. And so it's quite mind-boggling to see the impact that being in pain can have on the overall physiology of an individual. And it's also extremely concerning and saddening that how pain rarely ever comes up in diagnostic conversations. Um, and so I have had clients who've come to me for a nutrition consultation uh, with for dogs with severe skin issues or severe gut issues. and you know, they keep going in these cycles and loops of antibiotics and steroids and medical intervention. And the whole time, we're just simply ignoring the role of pain in those conversations. And again, when they have these conversations with some of their own vets, um, unfortunately, it's not the most productive conversation. And so even in my own experience, I have found that Every other dog that I engage with experiences some levels of muscular discomfort or pain. And I found this to be so true in cases with dogs that struggle with reactivity or just extreme fearfulness or anxiety. And the issue is that in some of these cases, pain doesn't show up in x-rays. And so I feel like if it doesn't show up in x-rays, the conversation on pain is completely ignored or devalued or loses merit uh, when, when, when vets and you know, individual pet parents are, are talking about that possibility. And so I also feel like there's an urgent need for vet practices overall to look at how pain can manifest in behaviors and other signs and take a more holistic approach to that assessment and diagnosis. I think that pet parents struggle to identify pain in their dogs for several reasons. Uh, one, is, one, of course, is the fact that, you know, we can often have a really tunnel vision on what pain looks like. And when our dogs don't meet that criteria, then we leave no room for the possibility of pain existing. But I also think it's because the body's pain system can be modulated by several other factors. And so basically the strength of the pain signal that is going around in our bodies can depend on what other sensory information is not only passing through the spine, but what other information and also how much of it the body is processing, right? It's like, you know, it's it's almost like if I am, if I'm dancing, um, you know, the really loud music in the room, I might not be able to necessarily process the pain that I'm feeling in my ankles. Uh, and again, this could happen for several different reasons, physiological changes in the body, but it's also like an overload of sensory information that I'm experiencing, right? It could be the lights, sound, it could be just people around me in a club, for example. Um, and so that kind of sensory information also interferes in how pain is being processed by the body. Um, 
I'm obviously not going to get into the physiology of this too much because it is quite complex and I still haven't figured out a way to sort of simplify it, I guess. Uh, but I will draw from some of what Robert Sapolsky talks about in his book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. That's such a great book. Um, and so you should definitely think of reading that one. If you're interested to understand just the linkages between stress and so many other physiological experiences of the world. And so he shares a few fascinating things about pain. The first one that he talks about is the distinction between how much pain one can feel versus how unpleasant that pain can feel. And so this makes sense because in cases, for example, where let's say soldiers are wounded in battle or when you're playing a sport and you fall and injure yourself badly, but you don't even feel the intensity of it in that moment, even though the pain can be a lot, there's a distinction between the emotive and interpretive uh, experience of that pain. The second thing that he talks about is the fact that the brain and spinal cord work in so many mind-boggling ways um, that not only can the brain alter how one responds to pain information, but so can the spinal cord. And the spinal cord is usually the carrier, right, for all pain signals and information to the brain. And then the third, the third one that he talks about, quite obviously, is the role of stress in heightening or numbing down pain for the body. And so when we start looking at the role of stress with pain, we're primarily looking at two situations, right? We're looking at stress-induced analgesia, which is the inability to feel pain. So stress actually blocks pain perception, which makes, let's say, running away in a dangerous situation possible or working through, you know, stressful deadlines possible. But there's obviously very interesting neurochemistry behind this, right? So it turns out that sometime in the 1970s, three different groups of neurochemists demonstrated that opiate drugs like cocaine, heroin, even morphine for that matter, bind to specific opiate receptors in the brain. And these receptors are actually located in parts of the brain that block pain perception. And so it made sense that folks who were consuming opiate drugs didn't experience pain in that state of high. Um, and then they found that the brain actually makes endogenous compounds with similar structures to that of opiate drugs. And so, you know, these endogenous compounds are essentially in three different classes. You have um, encephalins, you have dynorphins, and you have the famous endorphins. And so the reason why neurochemistry is important is because it helps us understand perhaps what's going on in the brain when stress exists and so does pain, right? So, you know, the famous runner's high or when you're exercising and then you experience this high that kicks in after like that initial pain has gone um, and it leaves one feeling like they can conquer the world and that they're just acing it. Um, 
interestingly, during this kind of exercise, a ton of chemicals and opioids, um, and opioids is what the body produces, and opiates is what is available in external form that replicates our reactions similar to opioids. But anyway, during this exercise, a ton of chemicals and opioids are released. And these work in the spinal cord, but they also work at pain receptors in the skin and organs. And so they end up blunting their sensitivity to pain. And what's really interesting is that, you know, exercise is one example. But the other example is, is just the fact that micro and macro stressors can produce these effects in the body. Um, and it's interesting that exercise is the example that we're referring to because, you know, often I engage with clients who will come back to me saying, oh, my dog can just, you know, run around for hours at an end or my dogs can just, you know, keep walking and walking and walking. Um, and I guess this is why they're able to do that, right? Because that euphoria and that, that high that is getting produced in the body is also blunting sensitivity to pain, is also blunting sensitivity to how much they are straining themselves, right? And so, you know, again, like I said, this makes complete sense because, you know, when I encounter pet parents, some of, some of the pet parents have a really hard time believing that their dogs are in pain um, when we look at all of these manifestations because they're jumping around, because they're zooming everywhere and are just extremely active, right? Um, but these are also dogs that actually live in moderate to high stress environments. And so it makes sense that when they are continually exposed to stressors, not only are their cups filling up really fast and then potentially overflowing and and what we see is that overflowing are quote-unquote problem behaviors but what we're also seeing is that those stressors can essentially block pain perception and also interfere with a dog's sense of interoception right which is the ability to really take stock of what you are feeling inside your body and so the dog could very well be completely unaware of the pain that's building up in the body because that pain perception is completely blocked. And again, I'm not defining stress as something that is negative. It could also be something that's extremely exciting. Physiologically, the body is responding in the same way, right? We're simply referring to a state of just arousal in the body that's activating that sympathetic nervous system. Um, and so, again, I find that, you know, this information was particularly useful in, I think, just contextualizing some of Luigi's behaviors. Um, and I suppose the link, this very complex link, which I'm not going to deep dive into today, but this complex link between hyperactivity, stress and pain. And I guess you can now see how they are related. Um but I, I still need some time to sort of flesh that out in a way that's really simplified. So I'm not going to deep dive into that. But I think it's that that information is useful because I think what I now start seeing as patterns is, you know, Luchi's cup is full, which is where she's experienced an incredible, incredible amount of stress. She 
moves into hyperactive or frenzied movements. And, you know, she continues in those frenzied movements at the point of sort of, you know, risking injury to herself. Um, or while engaging in those frenzied movements, she is simply unaware of the pain that her body is carrying. And she does have pain. Um, you know, she got diagnosed with spondylosis last year. She does struggle with some discomfort and sensitivity in her neck as well because of potential whiplashes that she experienced. So she does carry pain. Um, and so it's so interesting to me because now my approach to some of that frenzied behavior is twofold, right? One is to empty her cup, to drain her cup and engage her in a calming activity um, that can that can restore her to a space of calmness and allow allow regulation for her. But the other is to also proactively address pain for her that you know will potentially kick in. Um, after the euphoric high is is over, um, and so just proactively massaging her, um, you know, just just offering uh, supplements uh, in different ways and forms uh, are some of the things that I do. But yeah, that's 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 a big link, and I, I will definitely come back with another episode to sort of simplify it. Um. And so we have stress-induced analgesia, but we also have stress-induced hyperalgesia, which is where one experiences severe pain in a situation. And so the interesting thing is that hyperalgesia has nothing to do really with pain perception or pain receptors. It has everything to do with emotional reactivity and interpretation of the pain. And so I guess... Like this also makes sense in examples where we've talked about dog-to-dog reactivity, you know, and so one of the common examples that comes up is if a dog is, you know, being walked on a collar, um, just a regular collar or even like a choke collar, choke collar all the more, and they see another dog and the human pulls the dog who's on the collar. That, that pull can cause significant pain in the neck. And again, we know that the neck is an extremely sensitive part of the body. It's, it's not as protected. Um, and so, you know, we, we end up seeing that unintentional association, right, of seeing another dog and this association of pain on seeing the other dog. And I guess, you know, um, that could be an example of, of stress-induced hyper hyper um, hyperalgesia does that make sense okay i'm i'm wow it, it looks like i'm just having a conversation but i guess i suppose that 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 could make sense um and so i think that you know again in situations of chronic stress the pain is non-stop right sometimes even worsening um and even in situations of stress induced analgesia like it doesn't go on forever right those opioids that are there in the body that are essentially blocking this pain perception will eventually deplete because, you know, you are in a state of chronic stress, in a state of chronic stress, and the brain is producing only so many opioids in, in that particular time. 
And so that stress-induced analgesic state will no longer have soothing effects on you, right? And so the pain will come back, which is why in my approach to behavior consults, treating the pain is absolutely critical and finding the right experts to do that is important. But also creating low stress environments for the dog is an important part of that pain management plan. Um, because we know that stress can impact pain perception in, in more ways than one. And so if you suspect that your dog is struggling with pain, uh, do reach out to a Bark certified behavior consultant, um, to Thought Partner, or connect with Garland Myotherapy for an assessment. Um, they will not do diagnostics, but they will assess and assess the level, assess discomfort in your dogs. Um, and I found that really, really helpful. Um, I just think that, you know, some of our dogs spend so much time suffering silently. Um, and the least that we can do is just be open to the possibility of them being in pain and discomfort and find ways to make every day a little easier for them. Uh, CAM, uh, which is canine arthritis management, uh, this based out of the UK has a heart-wrenching and extremely beautiful video on uh, our dogs just suffering silently in pain and what we can do to help them. And so I'm going to add the link to that video along with a few other helpful links uh, in the episode description as well. Um, Garland Myotherapy, Parks Education, uh, they've done, you know, CAM included, they've done incredible content on just spotting signs of pain and discomfort in our dogs um and i think those are those are really helpful resources to start with as well all right that's the end of our episode i hope that this was helpful and useful to all of you um if you have any questions or if you would like to connect for a chat separately you can find all of my contact information in the episode description below. My social media channels are mentioned and so is my website. Um, but yes, thank you so much for listening in and I will see you next week with a new episode. Till then, lots of love to your dogs and you from Gucci Mutton and I.